Today is part two of my conversation with Dr. Mauro Guillen, a Spanish-American sociologist, political economist, management educator. But I know him because he is the former dean of the Cambridge Business School. He's also a fellow at Queen's College, so we share that in common too. He has built a series of research helping us look at those great trends, how they'll collide, and how they'll reshape the future of everything so that we can zoom out to get that perspective in order to zoom in and make trade-offs that allow us to design a life that really matters. So let's get to it. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to this podcast. And if you are not one of those people, subscribe right now. Pause, subscribe, and then make it easy on yourself to get new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. So I've studied this a little bit, and the nuclear family, as you're describing it, is itself an aberration because it grew up with the evolution of television. The idea that there's one house with two parents with, you know, ex-children, and that prior to that, and even into the 50s, what was more typical were these multi-generational families. And in fact, that's what you meant when you said family, yeah. was that you had these multiple generations, perhaps more because of economic concerns, but that this was the norm and that we shifted from that and in, almost invented the idea of a nuclear family as the way is described. Is that consistent with your finding? It's, it's roughly consistent. So in other words, the nuclear family is really a way of organizing a society in which you have a very large middle class, right? And it's a middle class that has all of those attributes that you mentioned in terms of, you know, having a comfortable life, having you know, all of those uh, appliances in the home and so on and so forth. But you see, the previous peak in terms of multi-generational households was out of necessity, was in the Great Depression in the U.S. in the 1930s, right? Mm. And prior to that, of course, yes, you're right. I mean, the nuclear family as we know it today didn't really exist. Although there are some records here for England that uh, back in the 13th century, that's when nuclear families started to, uh, you know, grow in numbers, right, and become more frequent. So it's a complicated history, right? But you're absolutely right that it's not something that has been a given throughout the human existence. Because as we all know, in primitive societies, family groupings included several generations. Yes, it, it almost seems like for most of us in these times, we think nuclear family is the core, whereas in intergenerational family and therefore an intergenerational sense of self is the natural output. If you grow up with your grandparents in your home, if you grow up with your aunts and uncles, you understand that you are a part of this larger whole. You can hardly think of yourself separate from that larger whole. And it seems to me, e even if the causes of so much of that were, were financial challenges, that there are some material advantages that come, tangible and intangibles. So it's interesting that we're finding, that you're finding this increase now. Well, that's an interesting... No, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. 
Absolutely. And it goes further, Greg. According to research by the NIH, the National Institute of Health in the United States, and some people at some researchers at Columbia University, you actually find better health outcomes in multi-generational households, better mental health as well, and also longer lives, so meaning greater longevity. It's, it's kind of stunning, right? Kind of stunning. So, but it, uh, but it makes some, but just trying to, I mean, I'm trying to make sense of these multiple themes we're talking about, but one of the things that's occurring to me is if you, is there seems to be a polarization that you're describing where there's this increase of two kinds of home, an increase of one kind that's single occupant, that's single mm -hmm. occupant, and an increase in these multi-generational homes. And what you're also saying is that there's research to support that the multi-generational homes seem to lead to better emotional and health outcomes. This means something, does it? Well, what this means, I think, is that the assumptions that we've been making for a long time are not no longer holding. And we haven't talked about, by the way, two other types of households, uh, which is single parents and their kid or kids, okay? So just uh, monoparental households, which are what? also on the increase. And yeah, tell me, tell me the other forms and what's happening to the trends as you found them. Yeah, so, so this is also increasing. The highest in the world in terms of single parents with one or more kids in the household is the United States once again. 23, one in four of all kids are living with just one parent. Now that has to do, of course, with divorce rates to a very large extent, right? And then the other kind of household is parents living with their adult children between the ages of 19 and 30. You know, right now in the United States, this is another record as 50%, 50%. In the UK is, I think, maybe 31 or 32% of young people between the ages of 18 and 29, they're still living with their parents. Now, a lot of that, of course, has to do with difficulties in terms of finding housing, difficulties in terms of finding a stable job, okay? But at the end of the day, regardless of the cost, what we're seeing is that we have all of these different kinds of households in the world right now, and they used to be marginal. Now they are, you know, 10, 20, 25% of the, of the total. Therefore what? Therefore, what we're seeing is once again, this breakdown in the traditional model, the model once again, that started, as you were pointing out, I would say a hundred years ago, right? Mm. With, the, with the disruption of the Great Depression or the Great Slump, as it was called here in the UK. Mm. But up to the present time, up until 20 or 30 years ago, that was the dominant model. And we would live our lives as a series of sequential steps. We would play when we were little, we would study, then we would leave the home, we would work, start our own family, and then retire. And now what we're seeing is that that pattern of stages is being disrupted. People of different ages are doing things that uh, two or three generations ago, people of the same age were not doing. What is your primary advice to somebody to respond to the trends that you're studying? Well, I think uh, there are two, two issues related to that question. That is a terrific question. One is, so what I'm proposing is that we need to be more flexible about how we live our lives that we cannot just leave them as a sequence of very orderly steps or stages, right, from one thing to the next. And I say this because of all of those disruptions that we were talking about earlier, all of those megatrends, the declining number of children that we live longer, and also technological change. Technological change, I think, is going to require all of us to change our ways, maybe to switch jobs, even careers, right, to get ready for something else, to learn another skill at some point. 
because whatever it is that we learned when we were young is no longer as useful in the labor market. So I think the key recommendation is flexibility. We need to gain in flexibility. And it's a recommendation not just to individuals like you and I. It is also a recommendation for organizations and for governments when it comes to policymaking. We need to introduce more degrees of freedom, more flexibility into the kinds of opportunities that people face in life, because we all will need to adapt in real time to a lot of changes, especially coming from technological innovation. Let me just speak to that for just a second, because I literally just had Bruce Feller. I just had Bruce Feller on the podcast in which he talked about this, I, the fallacy of the midlife crisis. And he said, life is mm-hmm. far more accurately described as a series of transitions. So he wrote a whole book about mm-hmm. that and also worked on a new set of he did a new set of thousands of hours of interviews about how that insight applies to our work lives and that it isn't a hierarchy, a single point that goes up, but it is a series of transitions. That seems to be, to me, a similar point that you're making. Am I right? Yes, I know. Absolutely. I think Bruce is absolutely correct in saying that it will become, if it hasn't already, part of our lives to have to make all of those adaptations and go through all of those Instead of crisis, let's just call them changes or discontinuities, right? Yeah. This is going to become so much more frequent in our transitions, exactly. And we better get used to that because there's going to be more than that. Right now, as you know, it's only a fraction of the population that experience very sharp you know, transitions in life, unintended, and some of them really difficult to deal with, like people who lose their jobs due to technological change or whatever in their 50s, right? And as you know, those people experience actually many hardships, the deaths of despair, and so on and so forth. Mm. But we have so many other people who run into these things. I mean, we tend to forget that not everything is, you know, a, a path of roses for everybody, right? I mean, we have teenage mothers, we have people who suffer from addiction and then they recover. We have people who drop out from high school because they don't see the, the value of education at that point in their lives. We have people who have to go through the foster care system. And all of them, and we're talking about altogether 70 million in the U.S., maybe in the U.K. it's about 10 or 12 million. Uh, That is a sizable proportion of the population who, by definition, have had to go through those, you know, really sharp uh, turns in their lives several times, right? So we seem to always think about... In these conversations, right, it's episode 193, 195, for those that want to go back and listen to it. It's like this is really universal, so that when you actually go and gather individual stories from people and get their life story, the shape of their career, the shape of their life, is for almost everyone, is these huge transitions every two or three years. And so we sometimes forget that's quite normal, And then we feel something's wrong with us when we're going through another transition, another thing where we have to get reoriented again. Now, you're saying part of the solution is to increase the degrees of freedom so that we can be more malleable to what's going on. That sounds like a sort of almost a government level or an organizational level change. What does the individual do? when these transitions are likely not just to continue, but even increase in the trend that you're describing. Yeah, that is the heart of the matter, Greg. So I'm so glad that you brought it up. In in the last Mm. chapter of the book, The Perennials, what I do is I say that the approaches to dealing with all of this 
out of three kinds. So as you just mentioned, is policy making by government. The second one is organizations changing, but the third is individuals and the culture changing. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So, for example, I address the problem of why women continue to be disadvantaged in the labor market. Well, they want to have children. But they, of course, are affected in a very different way than men when it comes to having children. And what we need for that is really cultural change at the level of men like you and I are doing more in the household. What mm -hmm. we need is also cultural change when it comes to what happens inside of organizations when people are rated in terms of their performance or their potential. As you know, those systems that we have in place, research has demonstrated time and again, that they tend to discriminate against women. They tend to underestimate women's performance and women's potential, right? In any, almost every setting where the research mm. has been done. So we need cultural change in addition to organizational change and government policymaking to address the most egregious instances of discrimination or bias. And what can the individual do? So I, I don't mean the individual's effect on the broader culture. I mean, when you look at all these trends that you're studying, when you try to imagine the future, what does the individual listening to this need to do to be able to survive and to thrive these great transitions that are happening around them? Yeah, so I don't specifically deal with that in the book at that psychological level, but I think that the single most important thing is to be open-minded and not to assume that all of those practices and customs that we have inherited from the past should be continued. So be open-minded about, you know, the possibilities. 
And by all means, be ready to be flexible, right? I frequently say that the single most important aspect of this is to keep your options open. Never make a decision that is irreversible. Never make a decision that is going to drive you into a cul-de-sac, into a dead end, right? That is what I think individuals should do. I want to come back to that word in a moment, irreversible. This idea that we have to keep our minds open, it doesn't sound radical, but it's certainly counter practical. It's not what people normally are doing, right? I just was recent I was just reading some research recently that showed that the older someone gets, the less curious they tend to be, speaking collectively, not individually. And one explanate one possible explanation postured is that as you grow you get old as you grow you get more knowledge and therefore you have less things somehow to be curious about. You can do the basic things of your life without asking new questions. I, for one, find that really awful, the thought of it, that that I will become less curious. I am quite determined that is not going to be the case for me. But I wonder if you've thought about that in terms of, well, if you, if you have to become more, if you're saying we need to be open-minded, how can people change the trend of becoming less curious uh, over time, as the evidence seems to suggest they do. Well, I think, you know, as we grow old, you're absolutely right. We are creatures of habit. So we get into our habits and, you know, if we grow up successfully and we get older successfully, then that just prompts us to reinforce the behavior that brought us to that point, right? So people who experience hardships are more likely to be more open-minded and to look for alternatives. But, you know, nothing is more, I think, powerful than the inertia that we as human beings are subject to. Because when we see something working, we just keep on doing that over time, right? But uh, to your point about curiosity, I think this is really important, right? Because what's going on essentially is that, you know, as somebody said, I quote uh, this person in the book, we don't grow old. We don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing, right? And you can substitute there play for curiosity. We stop being curious, and that's what you know makes us grow older in the not in the chronological sense, but rather in the sense of you know becoming less active, becoming less inquisitive about what we do in life. Well, I completely concur with that. In essentialism, I devoted a chapter to play because I think it's essential in and of itself. But in this conversation, it highlights that because of the temptation there is to just get into routines that are, in fact, not just suboptimal, but in fact, really damaging to our actual cognitive function and therefore the mm -hmm. quality of our life and the relationships and everything else. You used an interesting word before. You said you said you don't want to make a career decision that's irreversible. And I can't help when I hear that thinking again of your tenure at, again as your of your tenure again of your tenure as director at Cambridge can you tell us what were some of the challenges you faced in adapting you know to the new cultural and academic environment of Cambridge well, I think it's the usual things, right? So I came from the United States after working over there for 31 or 32 years. So you have several layers. Oh, absolutely. So you have several layers of adaptation that are needed because, you know, first you're crossing an ocean, you're going into a different country with different mm. institutions, with different ways of things. 
then you're moving into a different organization, of course, and not just any kind of organization, but one that has been around for more than 800 years. So there's a lot of things that you have to learn. There's a lot of traditions that you have to internalize. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, I would say, implicit understandings that people who know the institution well uh, can tell you about, but that you have to learn very slowly over time, right? But I wouldn't say that those difficulties, as important as, of course, they always are the ones that prompted me to uh, to return. I mean, once again, it was more to find a balance between work and family because commuting back and forth between the US and the UK was extremely difficult. But when you cross so many boundaries, right, cultural boundaries, national boundaries, organizational boundaries, the adaptation is just a tall order, becomes a tall order, very tall order. Well, there's so many things you said that I understand, you know, I think I can either understand or at least relate to. I mean, first, let's just talk about this, the institution and its traditions. It, you know, I've literally worked now, and as I'm sure you have, with hundreds of organizations, but it's the first time I've worked with an organization that's 800 years old. And one of the things that occurred to me after I'd been here a few months is that there's nobody at Cambridge who understands how Cambridge works. Nobody. Because even someone who's been there 40 years, I remember speaking with your assistant, for example, or I think has been here 40 years. And so she knows, like if she, if someone knows, she knows. But 40 years is nothing when an institution is 800 years old. When she first came here, it was already working. When all of us came here, it was already in full bloom. And so trying to understand a system that is so, so much older than the oldest person in the system is, I think, a unique challenge. Do you have thoughts? Well, I think it's a matter of degree, Greg. It's not just a black and white or zero or one, right? So Mm -hmm. it's a matter of degree. Obviously, yes, you know, somebody hypothetically who had been able to experience an institution such as this one for 100 years would be in the best position to really, you know, put that perspective. <laughs> but that we know that unless uh, somebody in the Silicon Valley comes up with the, you know, uh, the switch that essentially turns aging off, you know, and that may happen at some point, right? Who knows with all of the technological advances. But unless that happens, I think uh, it's just a matter of degree. And of course, time spent, even if it's not uh, the entire, you know, history of a particular institution will help. You're going to understand more the longer that you've been there, just as you say. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, absolutely. And on that point, by the way, of prolonging life, as you know, just I also refer to this in the book. This is really important. We have managed to increase the lifetime of a worm 10 times over, right? Good grief. But I'd rather be a, you know, a mortal human being than a worm. I don't know what choice you would like to make, but that's the choice I would like to make. Having said that, I also believe that it's probably far more important to increase not our longevity, but to increase or keep on increasing our health span. That is to say, Mm -hmm. the number of years, let's say, beyond age 50, that we remain physically and mentally fit. 
right? I think mm-hmm. that's even more important. And you see, in Europe, for example, the health span has been increasing faster than longevity, okay? So we have been gaining, in other words, healthy years to the total number of years that we live on average. Mm. The big exception among developed countries in the world is the US for all sorts of reasons that perhaps would be or would make for a great topic for another podcast is where longevity has actually been increasing faster than the health span. And that's, as you know, has to do with the fact that we don't, you know, Americans don't take care of certain things that are going to ruin their lives once they get older, right? Like uh, problems with obesity, with uh, chronic diseases, and so on and so forth. So I think Mm. there's also that balance, right? In terms of how we allocate resources in the world. Do we allocate resources to increase our longevity? Or do we allocate resources to make sure that the highest possible percentage of whatever number of years we live are in good health? Yeah, I mean, what you just said is such an interesting trend and so important. And as you think about quality of life, I've thought about the unintended consequence of coming to Cambridge. And it sounds similar to what you're describing in your own experience. We have been traveling as a family all here and all going back. And so even with that, the disruption is non-trivial. And I would say greater than I expected. And that's with us all going together. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, it sounds like that's been true for you too, that it was more disruptive than you originally intended expected. Is that correct? Well, disruptive in the sense that I found it very time-consuming and energy-consuming to keep on having the family life that I want to have, right? Because of the distance, right? The physical distance. Do you mean practically like on a day-to-day basis? You mean sort of just trying to be on the phone with people at late hours here? Do you mean those kinds of things? Or do you mean just the amount of time it took when you got back to the US every time to feel like you were connected again? Or both? Well, both things. Both Mm. things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can really relate to this. I remember speaking with a senior executive of a major pharmaceutical company and, and his wife. And they said, you know, well, the research shows that you, that it takes three or four days to reconnect with somebody if you've been away. So he would travel every Mm -hmm. week. And so it meant, they said, look, after years and years of doing this, 30 years of doing it, 40 maybe, either away from each other or just trying to get reconnected. And it really seems to have affected it. They're brilliant people. They're great people. But it has come as a strain. It's come as a strain. You relate or no? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I agree that it takes yeah two to three days to actually feel that you are in a different setting and relate mm-hmm. to, you know, even people that you know very well in a so normal way or usual way. Would you say the biggest challenge of being here wasn't anything to do with the University of Cambridge, anything? You literally would say it's just this unexpectedly great strain of the transition but for the family. You literally got, this was just way more difficult than I expected it to be. Yes, I underestimated the costs of that, yeah. Thank you, really, thank you for listening to this episode. What is one thing you can do immediately, you know, in the next five to 10 minutes to be able to turn this conversation into action in your life? And who is one person that you can share that action with so that they can help you be accountable and you can help them. For all of you that have written reviews on Apple Podcasts, thank you. If you haven't done that already, you have the chance to get free access to the Essentialism Academy simply by writing a review, posting it there, and letting us know about it. 
go to gregmcewan.com forward slash essential for more details. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.